read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome to News and Views. I'm your host, Rob Schofield. In a sudden move that largely threw traditional legislative processes to the wind, the Republican majority of the North Carolina General Assembly passed a far-reaching bill recently that would erect large and burdensome roadblocks from the moment of conception for patients seeking abortion care. On the day following the vote, I caught up with an attorney who testified with great eloquence against the bill, ACLU of North Carolina Senior Policy Counsel Liz Barber. And as Barbara told me, while the proponents have billed the legislation as a modest compromise, the hard truth is that it's anything but. Well, Liz Barber, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, Liz, you offered some really enormously powerful and compelling testimony this past week on the abortion ban legislation that Republican legislators at the General Assembly sent to Governor Cooper, especially given the, frankly, offensive fact that witnesses like you were only allotted two minutes to speak. There's so much I want to ask you about your testimony in this bill. I guess, first and foremost, could you... You explained in that testimony why this law really does a whole lot more than simply ban abortions after 12 weeks. And I wonder if you could maybe detail some of those points. Sure. You know, it's interesting when you said how this bill bans abortion. That was such a talking point on the Senate floor in the debate. And I just want to highlight that it is an abortion ban. They reiterated over and over, nowhere in this bill does it say ban, the word ban. It walks like a duck and it looks like a duck quacks like a duck, right? It's a duck. The bill says abortion after the 12th week of pregnancy is unlawful. And I don't know what that is if it's not a ban. It is not a total ban. It doesn't say you can't ever have an abortion. It's certainly a ban after 12 weeks. And it was really unbelievable that they had the gumption to say that it does not restrict abortion before 12 weeks because it couldn't be any further from the truth. Abortion currently in North Carolina is highly restricted before 20 weeks. 20 weeks is the one that people know. It's easy to understand. It's a number. It coincides with common perceptions of pregnancy. But there's so many restrictions we have on the books that are onerous, that are arbitrary, that are medically unjustifiable. And this bill goes on and layers on more and more and more. And the sponsors weren't able to offer any medical reason for these additional restrictions because there just isn't one. They can't be justified. They can't be seen as anything other than an attempt to prevent people from accessing care. As I understand it, the vast majority of early-term abortions are accomplished through consumption of an abortion pill or maybe a two-drug protocol where you take a pill and that causes the termination of the pregnancy. Am I right? As the law would be appear after this bill is, if it became law, you'd actually have to make multiple trips to a physician's office and actually consume the pill in front of them? That's right. So current law actually requires someone to, in getting a medical abortion, to swallow the pill in front of a doctor. Right. And And to be clear, it's just a pill. It's just like any other pill that you swallow that doesn't take effect in your body for an hour, several hours after you take it. And so the idea that the doctor needs to watch you take it out of concern of complications that wouldn't even occur until you're back home, it's ridiculous. And so currently you have to go for medical abortion for one appointment. Under this law, you'd have to go for two and arguably three appointments. So again, current law, there's a 72-hour mandatory delay between 
receiving informed consent, which is mandated by the state, and receiving an abortion. Currently, that informed consent can happen over a phone call. We heard several times yesterday that recordings are being used, and that's simply not true. Abortion clinics and hospitals are not using a robot, a recording. They're using live human beings. But now they're taking that a step further, that instead of being able to have that first appointment on the phone, the person is going to have to drive to their clinic. It could be 20 minutes away. It could be four hours away, depending on where you are in North Carolina. So that's the first appointment. Then they're going to have to go back for a second appointment to be handed a pill, swallow it in front of the doctor and drive home. Then it also mandates a third appointment that the doctor take all reasonable efforts to ensure that someone comes back for a third appointment, a follow-up appointment, seven to 14 days later. And talking to the doctors, they say that people are going to come in and they're say, is everything good? And they're saying, everything's good. And then they're going to leave because it's just not necessary. And so one presumes this is going to have the largest effect. I mean, it'd be effect on everyone. It'd be a, we know what a challenge it is to get in to see a doctor. But if you're in some rural area or you're maybe even you're a low income person, maybe you don't even have a car. What the heck do you do to get to, I mean, it just seems like it will make it almost impossible. It will. The current law, it's such a huge obstacle for so many people in North Carolina. They're not able to access abortion. And this is going to really triple the burden on them if they have to make three visits. It's three times you're getting out of work. Most North Carolinians do not have paid sick leave. That's three times you're getting child care. That's three times you're finding transportation. That's three times perhaps that you have to justify to a significant other your absence, perhaps in an abusive relationship. It's just impossible for us to know the situations that people find themselves in and It breaks my heart to think about all of the people who either aren't going to be able to access care, period, or aren't going to be able to access safe care and are going to take other measures. We're talking to Liz Barber, who's the senior policy counsel with the ACLU of North Carolina, about the new and restrictive uh, abortion ban that North Carolina legislators have sent to Governor Roy Cooper. As we speak, we're just speaking a day after the bill was sent on. Another thing I was struck about in your testimony, and, and as I've thought about this legislation, is is there any place else in North Carolina law where the state legislature gets in the business of telling doctors how often someone should come in or whether a procedure should be performed in their office or not? I mean, this seems to me like this is way out of their bailiwick. It is. And the answer is no. There isn't any other time because the General Assembly, they make laws. They don't know medicine. They don't know best practices, which are constantly changing and evolving. And we have to rely on doctors to be able to do what they do. And we look at, you know, the thousands of medical procedures. And we all know when we go in or we take our children in and they're going to get, uh, I don't know, a filling or a shot or whatever it is, you sign an informed consent. And the doctors have figured out what needs to go in there. Depending on your specific medical situation and the, the treatment that they're doing that day, they explain the risks, the benefits, and you sign the paper and say, okay. But for abortion, it's different. The General Assembly knows best. They know what has to be said. Unfortunately, a lot of what they're mandating that needs to be said is medically inaccurate. It is stigmatizing. It is judgmental. But nonetheless, that's what they do for heart transplant, for breast implants, for all of these things. They don't regulate what has to be told ahead of time. They certainly don't regulate how many follow-up visits have to occur. It just blows my mind that they think that any of this is justifiable. And, you know, one of the most obvious comparisons is childbirth. (laughs) And I am the mother of two and birthed them both in North Carolina. And 
lots of complications can happen after childbirth. Childbirth is enormously more dangerous to the mother than abortion. Yet you have your overnight stay in the hospital and they check to make sure you have a car seat and then they say, good luck. There isn't any law saying that you need to come back in for a follow-up appointment. What about this 12-week deadline, which is being touted as being somehow somewhere in the mainstream? There's no magic to this number, right? It's just basically picked out of the air as best I can tell. That's right. There isn't any magic to it. Furthermore, they've restricted medical abortion at 10 weeks, where medical studies and doctors tell me that it is safe and is used up to 11 weeks. And that's Mm. another another bit that they snuck in there that's gone largely unnoticed. Hmm. And there are also provisions about now they, they'll say, well, there'll be an exception for rape or incest, something like that. But that's not like the easiest bridge to cross either. If you were in the unfortunate position of having to pursue that option. It isn't. And that's a question that I've been getting a lot is what do these exceptions mean practically? And We don't know. I've read the bill and I am a lawyer and I can't tell you exactly what it means. So if there is some sort of report that a doctor has violated the law to law enforcement and they find that a doctor provided an abortion at 15 weeks and a criminal charge is brought against them, which is a felony, and the doctor says that they did it pursuant to the rape or incest exception, is it up to the district attorney to prove that it wasn't? rape or incest? Or is that burden on the doctor to put it on as what we call an affirmative defense, meaning the burden is on them and they have to prove what beyond a reasonable doubt? I don't know because the standard's not in there. Do they have to prove that rape or incest actually happened and that this pregnancy was a result of it? Do they have to call witnesses? Do they have to essentially try this person themselves within their trial? I don't know. It isn't clear. And so the burden on the doctors to have to figure out how to handle that when they shouldn't, they should just be focusing on doing their job and providing the best care that they can and are trained to do for their patients. It's just an impossible situation. Doctors are going to find themselves and they're literally going to be looking at going to jail if they somehow make the wrong call on something, at least as, as the law is written. That's right. And, you know, one thing that was really moving for me I went up to the sixth floor for the joint rules committee and I came out of the stairwell and saw about 12 to 15 doctors there in their white coats already lined up to go in and give testimony against this bill. And most of them weren't prepared with their remarks because we had not even had the bill at that point for 12 hours. We had not had it in our hands for 12 hours. It is over 40 pages long and it was overnight. So some of us needed to sleep. And so I was telling them, you know, they said, well, there's a fetal anomaly definition. Can you tell us where it is? Can you read it to us? And I read it to them, to the doctors. And they said, what does that mean? Like, Well, if I don't know what it means and you don't know what it means and I'm a lawyer and you're a doctor, then who's going to tell us what these words mean? Because They don't have medical definitions and they're not legally defined. So it puts them in an impossible situation. And every time they decide to provide care beyond the 12 weeks, they're going to have to wonder, is my medical license going to be on the line? Or even is my freedom. My freedom going to be on the line? That's absolutely right. 
We're coming to the end of our time with uh, Liz Barber, who's the senior policy counsel with the ACLU of North Carolina, talking about the new abortion ban legislation that the General Assembly has sent to Governor Cooper. As we have this conversation, uh, the bill is on the governor's desk uh, for his consideration. Liz, is there any chance that it could still happen that maybe a, a vote or two would a uh, lawmaker would come to their senses and realize that they don't want to uh, override a gubernatorial veto, which the governor's promised in this instance? I am choosing to hold on to hope. I'm choosing to hold on to hope that some of the senators who voted for this will listen to their constituents, listen to their daughters, to their wives, to their family, look up at the many faces that were looking down on them as they passed this in less than 72 hours, less than the time that they (laughs) mandate women to wait to make a decision about themselves. And they went and made this decision for millions of North Carolinians across the state. And so I do have some hope that some will change their vote. And I would point out that in the House, the votes were good for us. And so there's a real shot in the House. But that's going to come back to what made such waves at the beginning of the session and the rules for noticing a veto override and whether or not we're given a fair chance. Yeah, maybe that legislators uh, won't want to be going to the restroom during uh, the sessions in the coming days and weeks, lest the Republican majority try to push it through while they're out. That's right. We'll be watching very closely. We thank you for your courageous work on this important subject. Please uh, hang in there. Keep the faith. Maybe we'll talk again real soon. I hope so. Thanks, Rob. Coming up next, a state legislator and former public school teacher shares her concerns about the abortion ban proposal and what it will mean for vulnerable teens. Don't go away.